the perfect pitch is driven from an obsession and an inspiration and then it's honed like a piece of really good music with the perfect chorus and the perfect hooks <laughs> and it's so hard and then you got to sell it some people are natural at this some people are great at doing presentations i met a guy recently is a very introverted kind of engineer and his pitch is not his idea is so compelling and it's going to be amazing and he's raised 40 million dollars you know with a very non-sexy very engineering almost boring pitch so i guess we just don't know like i don't know a fucking thing but you never know but ultimately if you break down every successful pitch somebody's obsessed somebody's extremely driven and their idea aligns with the zeitgeist or with the needs of the market that they are going into. That is photographer and photojournalist Doug Menway, and this is episode 264 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is episode 264 of the show. Ah, it's my lucky number this week, 264. Uh, And it was with the fantastic, the incredible, the legendary Doug Menway. You can find him. He's a photographer. He's an extraordinary photographer. Find him on Instagram, D Menway, M-E-N-U-E-Z or Z depending on which part of the world you come from. If it's your first time here, welcome to the show. What is this podcast? This podcast is a conversation that you get to be a part of. It's a conversation designed to hopefully help you make today better than yesterday. Sometimes this chat will be with somebody that you know. Sometimes it will be someone that you don't know. That's okay. I guarantee in the next hour and a bit, you're going to hear something that you need to hear today. Something in the next hour or so will help you make today better than yesterday. That's a fact. This show comes with that guarantee, and there's 263 other episodes if you want to go and explore. Uh, who am I? Uh, well, I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm just your average bicycle riding, book riding, coffee drinking, plant eating, dog walking, kettlebell swinging, photograph taking, TV hosting, podcast making, husband, stepdad, and human from Sydney, Australia. And I've been making this show every Monday since 2013. Like I said, there's 263 other episodes if you want to check out. Plenty of them. Plenty of ones with photographers. Plenty of ones with people who aren't photographers, if photography is not your thing. But today is. If you, uh, I do want to say a big thank you to everyone on the Facebook group. If you want to join in at the Facebook group, a bunch of people there organizing a meetup before the Melbourne shows, the Melbourne live shows. Osher.is slash FB group. If you're keen on uh, joining the further conversation around this conversation there, lots of love, lots of support happening there, which is lovely to see. I do have to say a quick reminder, though, on the Facebook group, please listen to this. Very important. If you're in trouble, if you're struggling, this is just a general, I'm going to say this is just a general guideline. If you're in trouble, if you're struggling, the first thing you need to do is you need to call your doctor. You need to call Lifeline. Or you need to head to the emergency room, okay? If you're having a heart attack, you wouldn't write a Facebook post about the pain in your left arm and the faint smell of toast. You'd go to the doctor. 
you'd get yourself to medical care quick smart. Similarly, if you're in a crisis, please don't write a Facebook post about it. All right? If you're in crisis, go to a doctor. Do the smart thing. A Facebook post isn't going to help you feel better. Doctor will. Emergency department will. I'm serious. It, it, I don't, you know, to be honest, I don't know if I'm going to, um, you know, as far as the admins go of the Facebook group, uh, I don't know if I'm going to put any more posts like that. There's a couple, been a couple of posts in the last few weeks about it. Um, and I just don't really want to, I want to, you know, encourage self-care and taking care of a situation and taking action because it's in taking action that we retain power over what, over our situation and writing a Facebook post about, you know, that we're in a bad situation. For me, that is energy that you could have used to make a phone call, go see a doctor, something that would actually get you out of that situation. Um, you may not agree with that as a policy, but for me, I'm, I, I'm, I, if people do want to put those posts up, I, I, you know, me and the admins will, you know, message them directly. Just say, hey, go to, go to see someone and just redirect. But um, seriously, if you're in a crisis, do the smart thing. Take the step to take care of yourself. Take action. Take control of the situation. Get to a doctor. Get to a hospital. Call Lifeline. If you had a broken arm, you wouldn't type with your good hand about how much pain you're in and then wait for the likes and the comments, hoping it would make it feel better. It's the same with your head. Please go to a doctor. Please. The same, the same goes on Facebook. It goes for any other thing on your phone. It doesn't help. In fact, it's, it's only putting you in more danger because it's delaying the time between this crisis moment you're in and actually getting some perspective and some help and some guidance, perhaps some therapy, perhaps some medication, perhaps something that'll get you out of that situation. So take control of the situation. Take the step to make the situation change for the better Call Lifeline in Australia, 13, 11, 14. Get to an emergency room. You do the same with a physical ailment. Don't hesitate to do it when it's something to do with your head, your thoughts. Okay? Okay. Okay? Good. Great. Ah. If you have any thoughts about what I've just said, by all means, let me know. Send us your email at gmail.com. Um, how are you going this week? How are you going? How are the things that you do every day? How are they going? Those habits that you do every day that give you the life that you have. Because that's, that's a big part of who we are, isn't it? We're the product of the things that we do habitually. Some of those things bring us positive results. Some of those things bring us negative results. For example, uh, how could I give you something from my own life? It's been seven months, pretty much to the day, actually, that I shot the cover of Men's Health magazine. I was 11% body fat on that day. That was lean. And I'm not as lean as I was for that shoot, but I actually, right now, I've got more muscle on my body than I did then. And that's the result of the habits that I've put into my life around moving my body, about challenging my body, about progressively overloading my body. The habit I have of waking up, being the kind of guy that does 50 squats, and I'm trying to be the kind of guy that does 50 squats and 50 push-ups at the moment. While I do that while the coffee machine wakes up, as a minimum. The habit of being the kind of guy that works out in some way or another every day. They're simple things that I do every day. However, seven months of doing them has given me the result of more muscle on my body than I had when I shot the cover. However, on the other hand, like I said, I'm nowhere near as lean as I was. To me, I went hard out to get down to 11% for that shoot, but I'm not as lean as I'd like to be, you know? And that is a result of a habit of mine. And that habit is saying, fuck it, when it comes to snacks between lunch and dinner, after dinner, and after after dinner. 
It's not the one or two days that I did it that's given me the result of a t-shirt that's lumpier than I'd like it to be around the middle. It's the habit of saying, fuck it, every day for about the last six weeks. So this week, I'm trying to look at what I have in my life that's the result of my daily habits, both positive and negative, both conscious or unconscious. I'm asking myself, what am I doing every day, consciously or unconsciously, that's giving me what I'm happy with or unhappy with right now? What habits have I been performing every day that give me the situation? Because nothing really changes one day to the next. It's an accumulation of action over time that gives us what we have. So on the negative side, the fuck it's extend beyond my eating. My office is very messy because I've been saying, fuck it. And I have a habit of leaving envelopes unopened in a pile, which leads to things like, I don't know, missing bills and, you know, your card rego going unpaid and stuff like that. And like I said, I'm not as lean as I like to be because I've been saying, fuck it around snacking. And I know that's not in alignment with my goals around my health and my well-being. My garage, man, my garage is a clusterfuck right now because I've got a habit of saying, fuck it. And I just find something else to distract myself with rather than organizing the bots and boxes and the bits and pieces of bikes and all kinds of other things that are down there that, that frankly give my wife the irrits every single time she opens the garage door. And me too, to be honest, I open the garage door to get my car out. I'm like, oh, frightens me. But that pile of envelopes didn't happen overnight. My garage didn't get disorganized overnight. That's something that I added to every day with a habitual action. The garage didn't get disorganized by itself. It's a result of me adding to the chaos every day. I repeat the habit of going to put something in there and just shoving it in an empty space in somewhere that it doesn't belong. Like, no, 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 it goes over there with the potting mix and all the other gardening stuff. The extra kilos, they haven't happened since Wednesday. They're the result of the habit of going to the kitchen, making a snack that I know I don't need, eating calories that I probably don't need, taking me in a direction of a health outcome I do not desire. It's all a habit, a habit that I choose to repeat and I can choose to not repeat. But on the positive side, I was with my psychiatrist the other day for my monthly check-in to make sure that I'm still okay to stay off meds. And yes, it's been a year. <laughs> Thankfully, again, I've been given the all clear. I'm doing okay. I have my up days. I have my down days. But yeah, it's been a year off meds and the up days are still outnumbering the down days, which is nice. But they're a result of habits, the habit of daily journaling, daily training, training that's incrementally more challenging, trying to prioritize sleep, doing the work that I do with purpose and meaning, and most of all, making sure that I'm trying to connect with my wife and family on an authentic and emotional level, level a couple of times a day. This podcast is a result of habit. If you've been listening in the last few weeks, as Susan David put it, it's an I'm the kind of person who habit because I'm the kind of person who puts out a podcast every Monday. It's no mean feat to produce, and now I have a great team to help me do it. However, I just repeat the action every week, and now here we are, 264 episodes. It's a respectable body of work. It's opened up more opportunities than I can possibly have ever thought possible, but I just did it a week at a time. So maybe this week, maybe look around you. What is it about your life that you like or don't like? That is the result of something that you've been doing every day. What are the things that you're doing every day bringing you? Are they bringing you results you're happy with? Results taking you in the direction of the life you want for you and those around you? What are you happy or unhappy about your life? Is there something you'd be doing every day, knowingly or unknowingly, that's brought you that result? Are you choosing to be sedentary rather than active? Are you choosing to stay in a situation that's not healthy for you? Are, react, are you reacting habitually to a person or a thing in a way that brings you resentment? 
brings you anxiety. Now, while I appreciate not everyone's able to change everything, there's, there's plenty to think about. The way to change it is actually pretty simple. You just make it super, super, super small. I spoke to a, I spoke to a guy the other day. He's in his mid-70s. And he gave up smoking at 65 by habitually telling himself every day, I'm not going to smoke today. He said it took him three years before he stopped identifying as a smoker, but he simply made that choice every day. And eventually that habitual action brought him the result that he wanted. So what's the smallest deliberate action you can take in the direction of the outcome you seek? It could be one, just one squat, one push-up. Could be one less cookie at Smoko today. Could be just writing down one thing you're grateful for today. It could be not reacting to that person at work who gives you the irrits just this one time. Let him or let her just walk back out of the room and just not react. And then tomorrow, just do it again, but a tiny bit more. Two squats. One and a half less cookies. Not reacting to that person at work, not just this morning, but this afternoon too. Write down two things you're grateful for. The smallest incremental action in the direction of your desire, repeated over time, brings you the result. Just remember that. Just look around this week. Notice it. Just notice it. You might be surprised at how much more in control of your life you have right now than you might think you have. I did want to say a massive thank you to the very good people of Melbourne. Uh, both shows there are sellouts. So uh, I will see you this Thursday and this Friday, uh, the week this goes out. That's the 13th and 14th of December. I cannot wait. I absolutely cannot wait. I believe there was people talking about, people are talking about a dinner before the show at a place called Herbivore on Chapel Street. So if you wanted to maybe pop along to that, it's on the Facebook group. So if you wanted to check in, uh, go and have some dinner with some other people before the show, Herbivore on Chapel Street. 100% plant-based eatery. Oh, that looks bad. Maybe I'll pop in. <laughs> Might be a rehearsal. Um, but yeah, it's going to be great. Uh, 13th and 14th of December, Thursday, Friday night. So the, the last, so that means the, the only other place you can see the show will be in Brisbane on February the 8th. So if you want to check the show out, that's where we'll be. Uh, I, I cannot thank you enough for your incredible support around the book. As you know, we've crossed into the upper echelons of books in Australia, classified as bestsellers. They've pushed the button on, and at the moment, like, no sooner have they gone, hey, you're a bestseller too. Hey, we just put another couple of thousand books out there in the market. So there's more books out there that need to get sold. So if there's anyone in your life that you could perceive would do benefit by reading it, uh, maybe let them know. There's an event in the next couple of weeks in the Judeo-Christian tradition of giving so maybe you pass that on. Um, if you do have the book, thank you so much for supporting me and the message I'm trying to put out in the world. If it is for you, only if it's for you, may I please ask you either just leave a review of the book somewhere on Goodreads, Booktopia, Audible, on your own social media. If you please just put a post up about it, what you thought of it, what resonated with you, what you took away from it, what changed for you, that would be of enormous help for me. Um, if, if you wanted to buy another copy to give someone that you love in a few weeks, that would be even better. Um, yeah, that'd be great. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So let me tell you about my guest today. Doug Menway is a photographer from the United States. He has covered everything from the Ethiopian famine, the emergence of the AIDS crisis, and most notably the rise of Silicon Valley between 1995 and 2000. You and I are communicating right now, both broadcasting and listening, thanks to the people that he chronicled during this time, documenting the incredible emergence of that part of the world and the technology that came out of it. Doug and I first came to know each other when I was studying at Think in Amsterdam, and I'm so grateful that he and I were able to talk today. I've always been a firm believer in documenting your work. My vast collection of on-set and behind-the-scenes pictures from the early years of Idol and my time in the US are a testimony to that, and Doug is a fantastic example of why it is important. Probably uh, Doug's most significant work recently was documenting the incredible rise of Silicon Valley from 85 to 2000, capturing the generation and the creation of technology that you and I use every single day. You, you might not think that you'll ever be a photojournalist. You might only ever take photos on your phone. However, what Doug has to talk to you about today is not only a masterclass in documenting the world around you, but also what it takes to truly change the world for a man that was in the room as the world was being changed. Now, this one's pretty nerdy. It's not often I get to talk to one of my photography heroes, um, so I won't mind if, you know, <laughs> if it's not for you. But you never know. You never know what you can learn from an artist like Doug and a, a man who works and has a career like Doug and what lessons he's got that could translate into your own life. Because you never know what works for Doug and his photography process might just translate into your own process. Doug was kind enough to join me on Skype from his loft in New York City. Enjoy this conversation with Doug Menway. Hey, Doug. You handsome Australian devil. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? I'm grateful to have you on the show, man. You know, I love talking to you and we caught up at Think and um, just the opportunity to share your story a bit more with my podcast listeners, I'm, uh, I'm really excited about, man. Thank you. I'm honored to be on and I'm just thrilled you came back. I remember the last time we spoke was like 3 a.m. I was in Singapore or somewhere. You were in Amsterdam. That was so much fun. It was, yeah. And I remember <laughs> uh, it was when I was working at Think, uh, the School of Creative Leadership in Amsterdam. And um, I don't know how I even did it, but I figured out a way to, for you to control a PowerPoint yes. slideshow <laughs> remotely. 
Yeah, no, I'm not neurotic at all. I, I really need this. So I'm sure, I have to be able to control my show. <laughs> it was brilliant. It went really well. Yeah, you're in Kuala Lumpur. You're in Kuala Lumpur, if I recall. Where are you right now, Doug? I'm at home in our in our new loft. We just moved to Kingston, New York, the new Williamsburg, as it turns out. Um, everybody's moving up here from Brooklyn, it seems, and there's this yeah. whole new artist artist community. And uh, we had a plot, you know, a compound across the river, and we just decided to downsize into this loft we've had for about ten years, and it's just great. We're really it, today's the first day we've lived here without thousands of boxes around us. So that's always a great that's always a great day, isn't it? And we had a really lovely visitor who was helping me with Skype tech support, this brilliant woman, <laughs> a former Apple person who actually created the uh, and led the team that developed the camera on the iPhone, <laughs> America. And I'm sitting there going, fact, fact, fact. I don't know if I can curse on your podcast. You can swear all you like. Fuck, you know, because Skype changed their their interface. First of all, last time I used it, no problem. I open it tonight and I'm like 10 minutes out and I'm like, great, I'm a little ahead, great. And now it suddenly doesn't recognize me, wants me to sign in, but you can't just sign in. It's a Microsoft must have Microsoft account. Well, I don't yeah. have one, so I have to make a new account. And I couldn't find my password. It was like a it was like a movie of tech nightmare. And so finally I turned to America. I said, I hate to bother you with this, but anyway, my brain froze. <laughs> she set up this new account on uh, on Microsoft and it's just and then I finally reached you and you saw what happened. <laughs> so. Well when you when you're reaching out for tech support and you can reach to one <laughs> One of the actual people that put the camera on the front of the iPhone, that's going to help you out. I knew you would appreciate that because here's a person who actually, you know, I mean, how does it feel to actually change the world, right? And here is a human being, Mariko, whose dearest friend, you know, billions of photos are uploaded every day. I don't know how many iPhone, but billions of photos are uploaded. I think that camera to me, if you look back at the history of technology, you got the Jacquard Loom. You know, you got the Macintosh, and then you have the iPhone camera, you know, <laughs> and the iPhone, I guess. So, but the camera has unleashed so much creativity. So many people around the world are, you know, not trained visually, and now they are learning, and they're, it's exciting, and you see everybody has this access to their own visual power. Uh, that, that's something I'd really, I'd really like to talk to you about because uh, just even in, in my lifetime, the, the power of photography and the access to photography has changed so, so very much. And, and your perspective on it is, is one that I'm, I'm thrilled about, but not only the intersection of technology and photography, which you absolutely had a front row seat to and still continue to have a front row seat to, Doug, which I'm, I'm super excited about. So to paint the picture just a, a little bit, when in your life, I'm, I'm guessing photography started pretty early for you, but when in your life did you first go, this is a thing that is allowing me to express who I am a little more than everything else? Oh, it's a great question because I was talking with some, a young person the other day about finding your calling or how do you know what you're supposed to do in life? When does that hit? My dad, who painted as a hobby, if you will, had an Argus C3, an old 35 millimeter camera, and he gave it to me when I was 10 to try. And I immediately ran outside in the snow and took two rolls of film straight up into these dead tree branches. <laughs> 
and had it processed. And from that moment on, I was obsessed. Now, prior to that, I had a great passion to be a painter. Even though I was 10, I really wanted to be a painter. And I would go to the Museum of Modern Art on weekends when I could. And I had all these books of Matisse and Picasso and the Impressionists. And, you know, so I think I was quite young, new, visually was very stimulated. And But when I got that camera and I saw the prints, and then when I was 12, I built a dark room in my bedroom. And that was it. You know, I was just sucked into that. And I think I always knew that I would be a photographer from that point on. I did get sidetracked into music for a few years and made a commitment when I was about 18 to dedicate to photography and quit the band and, uh, and move to San Francisco to go to the Art Institute and become an artist. And then I got sidetracked into journalism, became a photojournalist. <laughs> and then, and then uh, you know, whatever happened after that. <laughs> okay, so your father was a painter, so clearly you were – you know, early on, I mean, I, you know, think about my own father, he was a doctor, but he was a prolific musician and taught very mm. early, you know, the, the language and the, the feeling of appreciation of why, you know, the harpsichord is different from the spinet, which is different from the piano. Yes, they're all keyboard instruments, but they all have their own thing. And here's what you can do with this. And here's what you can do with that. So when you were experiencing art with your father, was there conversations about light and shade? And, you know, this is a, an exact replica of what the person was seeing, or this is a version of what the person was trying to interpret. Was there those kind of conversations with your dad? No, I don't think so. <laughs> Just ask him. And, and actually, you know, I didn't even know he was painting then, to be honest. He, it was a hobby for him. He was a community organizer. Yeah. And he was working very intensely to create social change in the U.S. and was like burning out on that. So I really didn't see him that much during those years. And, you know, then later in life, he really started painting again seriously as he after he retired but but he had a visual aesthetic and i think he would just sort of drop bombs on me at the right moment he would he he just did the right thing at the right time that he saw i was ready for and i think that was one of them that camera and i don't i'm sure he told me stories about that intrigued me enough to want to know or, or try the camera i don't remember i know that my mother was really into the impressionist and i think that's how i saw those she had these books of all the Impressionist painters. So I think that's how I got into art originally was from my mother. She became a poet later on. So so your father then, uh, when, it, when you think about your career path and what you've found extraordinary success doing, it seems your father's influence of, you know, telling the story to enroll people in positive change might have been the thing that he gave you. I think it gave me a sense of responsibility right. to the community in the sense that, he was on a mission, and as I left art school to move into photojournalism, I discovered that was a noble cause. You know, you had to be willing to die to make a picture that could bring light to injustice if you were going to succeed at that. You had to be all in. And it was yeah. definitely probably very – I think I owe my father a lot for that because he had a sense of, of responsibility to the community and to – society or whatever. And I think as a photojournalist, you're telling stories that are not often told or not being told. And you want to, you want to shed light on those things. So in recent weeks, we've certainly seen how photographs have shifted the paradigm of public opinion around, certainly uh, with the refugee crisis on the Southern U S border um, photos of kids getting rescued out of a flooded Thai cave brought the world together. Why, 
is it a photograph that can help change our heart more than like the most perfectly constructed sentence or most perfectly constructed paragraph? Do you want to really know? Yeah, I really do want to know. know the answer to that? <laughs> Here's my theory. It has to do with visual memory and how humans process information. I believe that the way our minds store visual memory, and I researched this a couple of years ago and couldn't find any. There's lots of studies now and information about how we store long-term and short-term memories. But visual memory isn't really, I don't think, I haven't seen anything in two years. I haven't looked in two years. But here's the thing. I think the still photograph, unlike video or film, is the perfect data set for our brains to grok to really understand and see and store stuff. And I think the reason still photographs survive to this day in this super media saturated motion video world is because of that. And, and we use those still photographs to understand who we are in our place in the world subconsciously. I think we're all asking, who am I? Why am I here? I think that's the background chatter for the human condition. And when you look at a photograph of a kid in Thailand or a, an adult, whatever, you learn, but you also see who you are and who you're not. You sort of can identify or not. You see yourself in opposition to the people or in, in ways you want to be like them or you want that dress or, or, wow, that person's cool. But you really see, and part of the reason I believe this is because when I think really hard about my own memories and I think really hard about a dream I had or a film that I saw, when I really break it down, it turns out that what I'm really carrying around with me is a still frame the keyframe from that dream. And then I think of the next scene and the next scene, and you can see how the mind could assemble it just as we assemble a, a film with frame by frame. It's almost interesting too, in technology, we end up sometimes unintentionally realizing how we're copying biology. As we're now we're really consciously trying to recreate the brain, but I think there's so many examples in science how we just recreated something that already exists in nature. But I'm, I'm digressing a little bit, but I really believe that someday we'll discover that we capture, you know, you open your eyes and the first thing you see is upside down in black and white. You're scanning for threat, you know, fight or flight. And then it turns upside down in color and you get all these other information. And then your brain fills in like, I don't know, 50%, 70% of the information is because we really actually don't have that higher resolution. And what I think happens is we create still frames just like we do keyframes of a, you know, a video you post on Vimeo of our visual memories. And that's, I think, the reason that's still photos. If you want, you know, we can't prove that, so that's my theory. But beyond that, forget that whole thing. Let's just say you have time to study it. It's still, it's in front of you. You can look at the different details in a way. When motion's passing by, you get this, you get this hit, but you don't see everything. It's a, it's a headline almost. And when you have a still image, you can see the pain on that person's face or the joy, and you can reflect on it in a profoundly emotional way um, that you don't always get with motion. You know, when you combine motion and sound, it can be just as powerful, of course. Of course it is. But I don't think it's as lasting as the still. Otherwise, I don't think the still would be around. But why are books still here, you know? I think there's a biological reason besides culturally, and whatever other reason you can come up with. <laughs> no, no, that's look, that that's fascinating, and it it, it kind of makes me think then because I've I personally I've often found a black and white photograph to be more emotive 
than a colour photograph. And I wanted to get your thoughts on this because you mentioned earlier that our that we're actually being told lies by what we see. We don't see everything where our brain fills in a lot of the gaps. Right. All right. So we're told. Is it in the filling of that information that's missing from what we're seeing, which in a black and white photo will include the colour, is it, do we then personify what we're perceiving a lot more and that brings us more emotionally towards what the photograph is, Doug? I think you're on something there. And I've always felt, you know, I didn't shoot colour until I was 21. And so from the age of 10 to whatever, even when I was at the Washington Post, they didn't even have colour when I started my internship there. So I was always learning about black and white, the zone system, and I was taught to see in the negative what would be your black and white negative, and you would see light and dark and shadow and then reverse it to positive. When I got into color and I really started to think about what color meant, it's funny because you can accept sometimes you'll say, oh, that's a good picture, but it's really just the color of your glasses that's making it work because the color is so interesting and also distracting. And I think what you said is right on, because I think black and white photographs are more emotional because you are not distracted by the color. You see the emotion faster. You see the motion faster, and that's why black and white is hard to shoot because a lot of times we'll rely on the crutch of color to let a picture go through that we wouldn't accept in black and white. It isn't that good. If you change it to black and white, it's just not that interesting, but color is so powerful for us. For those that aren't colorblind, you know. Do you, do you think about when you're making a, a photo, like as a photojournalist, you've covered some of the m- most interesting yet most harrowing things that have happened in, in recent history. Um, you had a front row seat as America was grappling with the AIDS crisis. You were, you were there, you are covering the Ethiopian famine. Those photographs changed for a lot of people, I'm sure, how they felt about both of those things. Do you think about the change that those people might experience when you're in the moment where you're there in that hospital ward or when you're there, you know, in that camp? Or do you go, how can I serve this person? How can I, or how can I serve the person viewing this? Like what, what's going through your head when you're looking down the, down the lens? There's no, it's much narrower. You know, you're in tunnel vision, just so sensitive to what's happening around you. And you're trying not to be disruptive. You're trying not to change the story. You're trying not to be a factor in people's behavior. And you're trying to be faithful to the truth as best you can understand it, always knowing that you don't know what you don't know. And that's kind of my motto is I know nothing, basically, because you think you know shit and then you find out, oh, my God. (laughs) And this is part of the problem in journalism is that everybody signs an oath, basically, to, you know, when I was starting out in newspapers, we had to sign an oath, you know, to do good and tell the truth and be honest and so forth. But it's an echo chamber and there's all these economic influences on different media outlets and they tend to emphasize certain things and not others. But by and large, Most of the journalists I grew up with would, like I said, they'd be willing to die to get the story out. But at the time you're telling the story, it's so hard to be there. It's so hard to get the picture. The picture is so hard to get, to get anything good. It's just so hard that you have to be completely focused on the immediate vicinity. And you kind of have to have eyes in the back of your head. And you're just like, it's almost like a Zen state of awareness, just hyper aware, especially when we were shooting film. Because you're not going to fly 7,000 miles back. You can't reshoot it. It's like that. So 
you become almost a mystic, <laughs> but you really have to just be there. And honestly, the rewarding part about it though, is when you're that focused and you're that close, you make really strong connections. I mean, they may not last, you may never see them again, but I always acted as if I was going to see them again. And I always wanted to be, I always used to say, I always want to be able to come back. So a lot of times you actually don't take the picture because there's too much pain or it's too intrusive. Um, you know, later you might think, wow, that's going to be important or that was an important moment or this is what we need to get immediately to New York so they could put this out. But in the moment that you're shooting, I think um, it's more about composition and light shadow and what's really happening and um, whatever the dangers might be. It's hard. It's a good question, and I'll have to think that through a little. That's all right. We, you, you can let it answer. Mull it over while, while I yeah. just un unpack two things that you mentioned there. Number one, <laughs> and it does sort of play back to, you know, does the picture work if it were in black and white? And it kind of along, along those lines, if you, you mentioned something very important, you slipped over it, but I feel I don't know if it's still around too much when it comes to cover photos and you know photojournalism work uh, that we see or things proposing to be photojournalism work in a Facebook newsfeed or Instagram newsfeed. The idea that the photographer should not influence the moment that's happening in front of them. Can you talk me a bit through that and, you know, what are some things you have to look out for and when we're appreciating a news photo, are there things that we can tell of like that's a photographer who's asked them to smile or that's a photographer that's asked them to hold a thing? You can tell. You know, I'm interested about that line of, of crossing that line. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the greatest photo essayists and photojournalists that we all admired is uh, this guy. Uh, well, you can't see it. It's wrapped up because it's Doug so just precious. just got a book but... off the shelf here. Who was it? Yeah, it's. Minamata by W. Eugene Smith and his wife, Eileen M. Smith. But Gene Smith was the guy most well-known for creating the photo essays of Life magazine in the 50s, late 40s and 50s. He was injured in World War II and came back from that. And, you know, he was so passionate. He would get in such battles with the editors to tell his photo essays. And he influenced a whole generation of photographers. I mean, you had the Magnum guys doing their thing. And Gene Smith came in and just tore it up. And he did this beautiful, unbelievable humanist work that to this day it stands on its own as just unparalleled, you know, but he bled and he, you know, basically gave his life to tell these stories. At the same time, it turned out, and I met him when I was 17 and he told me that he had sandwiched negatives together of, uh, uh you know, some, a very famous picture of, um, the doctor in Africa, and he had moved, asked the nurse midwife, he did this famous story called the nurse midwife, and he asked to move the pregnant woman over closer to the woman window because of his lighting, and he would direct things. This is like sacrilege, you know, for photojournalists and documentary photographers to interfere or change, and he explained it. He said, you know what? I never thought I was that. I was an artist. I'm an artist, and I'm telling the truth as I see it, the subjective truth. Now, remember I told you I started in an art school. And by the mid-90s, photojournalism wasn't working out for me. I mean, all the budgets had been slashed by the end of the 80s. And I wanted to do longer-term stuff, but I had a son had been born. And so I was struggling with how I was going to support my family because I had had friends who had been killed. And it 
just seemed like that wasn't going to be longevity and I needed to be there. I wanted to be there for my son. And uh, I ended up getting into fashion and I started getting commissions to do uh, commercial work. And then I got into advertising, corporate and advertising work. And I came up with this idea that I could do this commercial work as a documentary photographer and they could use those skill sets to tell the story of their product as the culture changed, that became important. They needed authenticity and relevance. And I had this idea that I could use that commercial work to pay for my really serious long-term. I would be like, the I learned this from Steve Jobs in Silicon Valley. I created my own financing for my passion projects, which they don't pay, <laughs> they don't make any money. And no one is gonna hire me to go out for years and do the stories I wanna do. So I figured out that's my that was my deal with the devil, my compromise. And I, I think it worked out pretty well. <laughs> but 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 to your point, in the commercial side, it's great because I can direct and change and I can do everything. And I always think of Gene Smith when I'm doing that and I'm moving people around. I'm like, wait, oh yeah, I can do that. This is commercial. But in my my personal ethic in journalism and when I'm doing documentary work is to completely be a fly on the wall if I can. And, you know, if you've read about or studied in science the term the regression to the mean, where a scientist will publish their finding and it'll be like, wow, it's Mm -hmm. actually 70 percent. So that's way above 50. That's pretty amazing. And then immediately the peers start trying to replicate this. And it's the next. It turns out if you do a study of somebody did this, every single published uh, result. The follow-on experiments that Pierce did to replicate it, they're all regressing to the mean. This is, a, this is a thing in science. They're never the same or above. They're always lower and lower and lower. And every further-on experiment, it gets closer. And this ties in with the observer watching the subject and the influence that – and they've done studies now where they show that – yeah, you're in the room, that changes the results. You go behind the glass, it still changes the results, not as much. You go into the next building and you're watching from a hidden camera. It also has an actual measurable effect on the subject's behavior. So what are you doing there with a camera? What's that going to do? So I'm aware. I'm hyper aware. And at the same time, I really believe there's been a lot of stories where people completely lost the ability to track me and forgot that I was there. I know that for a fact because years later they said, Oh, you know what happened? I said, yeah, I was there. And they're like, no, you weren't. <laughs> That's actually happened to me. And they didn't remember that I was there. So I know I can become invisible at times. And there are things you can do. But we worry about it. I, I know my friends worry about it. And I think we feel like if you're part of the story, you're defeating the whole point of telling their story. But That's a constant push-pull that happens. It's a danger. The disappearing into the background must have been very helpful uh, over your career, and that is a, that is a definite definite skill when it comes to, you know, being a photojournalist. And that that would probably be a superpower, I'm guessing, in in your line of work. You did mention Steve Jobs, and of course, there's that you know extraordinary book that that you've put together, Fearless Genius. How did you make a connection? with Steve. Talk, let's talk about that. That book's all about the uh, first kind of real wave of extraordinary innovation that happened in Silicon Valley, the end of the seventies into the mid eighties. How did you first make the connection there with Steve? Well, I had a friend, Rick Smolin, who asked me if I knew that, did I hear that Steve had just been fired from Apple? And I was shocked. Now I had just come back from, um, 
covering the famine in Ethiopia, which you mentioned before. And that story was so overwhelming for me, even though I had shot a lot of news and terrible things. I, I found the scale of that story to just be astonishing how much suffering was going on. And it made me have a kind of an existential crisis at a relatively long, you know, what can I photograph of the human race that shows tangible positive change that there's a reason not to kill ourselves, you know? There's all this man's inhumanity to man and how much evil is in the world and good versus evil. And I kind of started to think about doing, I don't want to sound like Pollyanna, but try to find stories that, even if they're just little stories, that are progress. You know, people are moving forward. They're progress. They're inspiring. And I did a book on AIDS orphans in Uganda that was from the point of view of the transformational power of education. You know, so that was that's what I'm interested in, in process and how you move forward. But anyway, when I heard that about Steve, I thought, he had changed the world already once. And he announced at that point he was going to make a supercomputer for education. And I knew that, well, education was the key to every social issue. And so I thought of my dad and I thought of society. And uh, Rick gave me an introduction to a woman named Susan Kerr. And I called her up. And um, then I got a meeting with Steve. And I, you know, I told him I wanted to shoot his comeback. <laughs> and he's like, and I said, and I want to document you and the team. You know, I want to understand your process of innovation. I had no idea what I was really thinking of. I didn't know anything about it. But I just thought, how do you build this stuff? And let's document that. And it's probably the most boring thing you could tell an editor. I'm going to photograph these people in cubicles thinking. In bad light, black and white, because color couldn't handle the low light. It's low light. At that time, you need you'd need to bring in lights and stuff. And I was going to document this team with Steve leading, and I asked him for permission to follow it from beginning to shipping, you know, from the inception to shipping. And then I tell them I wanted to publish it in Life Magazine at the end, and he laughed and he said, "Okay, let's do it." And that was it, and that's how it began. And I have to say. Um, I was always really scared around Steve. I was always nervous as much as, you know, I'd been kidnapped at gunpoint. I had shot movie stars and whatever. And, but Steve had this ability to see right into your soul and you knew you couldn't hide. And by the way, photojournalists, a lot of us don't ever grow up. We can stay immature and fail in our relationships and never deal with reality because we're always behind the camera. Even if we're PTSD and we see horror and shit, we don't have to be mature human beings, ironically. And Steve wanted everyone in that room to be there for a reason, and they had to know why they were there, and they had to be the best in the world. And and even though he let me in and gave me that access, I knew that someday he would he would challenge me. And so that was a second existential crisis, which was, who am I and why am I here? And you know what? I would have loved to have changed the world with my pictures at that point, but I hadn't done that. You know, I hadn't done that. But I realized here are the people right in front of me, like Mariko here today, who actually, they are changing the world. And all I got to do is make a record of these people. And that's my purpose. And that became my mission was simply, I mean, it took a lot of pressure off. And from that moment on, it was a lot easier to deal with Steve. I wasn't so intimidated. I mean, he was only two years older than me, but I felt like I was a kid compared to him. And so I kept my distance and tried to be invisible and just do my job and uh, not have any bias. And, and it's funny because my wife, we were talking about Steve 
And she said, um, you know, Steve was trying to be friends with you and you were always pushing him away. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I was like, I had no memory. I didn't really remember that like that. I didn't remember it being like that. And, and then I thought back and I thought, oh, I know why, because I covered a lot of cults and I didn't want to get sucked into the, into the, uh, into the cult. I didn't want to, I wanted to stay objective. I still felt I needed to be objective at that point. And I didn't want to, you know, at the risk of offending him, I kind of kept my distance. And we had some really intense conversations in a, and one brutal screaming match, knockdown, drag out argument that I actually won in three years. That was the only time we had an argument. Otherwise, he was incredibly generous and kind and let me do what I wanted to do. He was just he I think he thought I was a little bit of a mystery because I wasn't he couldn't control me, but he gave me permission. He thought it was like I was like some experiment, I guess. But as you can imagine, this was a formative experience and this changed the course of my life because I was so uh, amazed at the things he was doing, the things he would say. I mean, we learned so much just listening to him talk about what was coming in the future. You know, he'd come and gather us all around and he'd, he'd come back from lunch with somebody like Andy Grove and he would process what he'd learned through his brain and then turn it into a vision of the future that inevitably would be true. <laughs> Not every, not everyone's going to document a tech pioneer that goes to change the world twice or three times, depending on how you, how you count it. Yeah. At least three. <laughs> At least three. But everyone's going to have that moment of, of, of what am I doing here? Why am I here? You mentioned what happened after you came back from Ethiopia and then... And I'm sure you're sitting there in a room and you've got a, a, you know, a 35 millimeter camera worth a couple of hundred bucks and you're standing there knowing how much you're getting paid in a room where Steve's pitching to Ross Perot going for $100 million, knowing he's going to get $100 million within 45 minutes. You must have been, you know, been overwhelmed by this and you're faced with this. What the fuck am I doing? How did you get through that? What questions did you ask yourself to help you get to that point of, ah, this is my job? Well, you know, I knew what I was doing. I'd shot six covers of Fortune by that point. I had done a lot of things. So I wasn't a lack of confidence. It was just being vulnerable to someone on that close of a level that you're trying to document that they could see. And one of the things Steve did was, you know, he used his, that was his superpower to see your vulnerabilities so that he could get you to do what he wanted you to do. It's hard to get a team of engineers who are actual geniuses, brilliant, to attempt to do something that they're telling you or he, they would say it's against the laws of physics, Steve, and he would just get a bigger bat. You know, it's really hard. You know, we're going to Mars. Well, it can't be done, but if anyone can do it, these are the people that can do it. And so that was his, one of his things that he would do. And he really wanted people to push back and fight him. That's how he knew he could trust you. If, you could, if he could try to crush you and you stood up to him and fought for your ideas, then he knew, okay, fine, you could change his mind. Um, but for me, going in there, it wasn't a lack of confidence. I mean, I had lived through a lot already at that point, and I knew I was good at what I did. I knew I had a skill. I felt like I had a gift, and I was being given these opportunities, and I felt I had a responsibility to do it, so that helped me overcome. But the fear was more about, on a personal level, because, you know, like I said, it was an existential thing. Like, who am I and why am I here? I really had to think that through. When you're given an assignment, 
like I remember I got an assignment from Newsweek, go find a heroin addict and follow them while they go and buy the heroin, go back to their thing, place where they are and have them watch them shooting up, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Those are about three or four crimes you're probably <laughs> aligned with there. But, you know, you get these assignments, you just go, you just go and you just go do it. When I shot Steve, this was my idea. Now, it turns out Steve had the same idea. I just was there in the right place at the right time. He was actually looking and thinking about documenting himself. But I wanted to do this long-term photo essay, and I wanted to do it about education and changing the game with that and this tool they were going to create that was going to unleash the power. You know, really, really, he wanted some kid at Stanford to cure cancer in his dorm room. He said, I wanted to see that happen. So... That changes the dynamic when you're responsible for it and you're thinking about how you will tell the story. You don't even that is overwhelming because you don't know if you're going to be up to the gate if you're getting anything. You know you don't know, and it was a three year project. So, you know, I just felt that, and also there's the ignorance of youth. You know, I was only 27 years old. Who isn't confident at 27? <laughs> you have a few dings, you know, once in a while, but but you managed to unlock the why. Yeah. Yes, I managed to unlock the why, and that was very liberating. That was really cool. And then later as I got older and I'd be doing other things, I started to feel like I actually went, there's this, um, Maiji Santu in Brazil. My wife is Brazilian and she works with this woman for years and she is uh, candomblé and different aspects of different sort of religions and, and, uh, belief systems. And she read the tarot for me in New York city one night and she looked at me and she said, the divinities are speaking through you. You were the messenger. Shut up and take the pictures. <laughs> Stop talking. <laughs> so, you know, you get this feeling sometimes, you do when you're out there, that there's just, something's talking to you, like this chill comes down my neck. And I turn my head and there, it's like being presented to me. The picture's like a gift. Right. So, like yeah. But, you know, that's years and years and years of hard work and dedication and learning the process. So all the technical stuff is out of the way and second nature so you can be present for that. That's the important thing to recognize there, Doug. You've you've documented, not only did you document the moments, the years of Steve Jobs' career, but you've also, you've documented similar things for over 70 more by now companies in their ascendancy, sometimes descendancy. I'm interested... You've been in the room for a lot of pitches, probably as many as the good, really good VC. When it comes to storytelling, talk to me what you've learned, what works, what doesn't work in a, in a really solid pitch. You know how hard it is to write a hit song, right? I think it's exactly the same. The pitch, it's no different. You're creating a work of art. And, you know, people don't think business is creative. Bullshit. You know, the best entrepreneurs and innovators, it's, it's, they're like artists. I, I, I'm fascinated by it. And yeah, I remember when Jeff Bezos was raising money, he practiced his pitch on my wife, Therese, and I going up Aspen Mountain for 20 minutes alone with Jeff in the lift. And uh, at the end of the ride, I said, oh my God, what did you think? And I think it's great, Jeff. You're going to, you're going to, this is, I can see the future. It's going to be amazing but you're going to kill my local bookstore. <laughs> He's like, no, 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 <laughs> no, we're not. But yeah, they kind of did. But the bookstores have come back, if you've noticed. Anyway, I saw a lot of pitches at Kleiner Perkins. They used to let me come to the Monday morning meetings. And one day John Doerr showed me a bunch of business plans. 
for Netscape and just a whole bunch of companies like Sun and Compact and AOL. And he laid them all out and he wanted to do a project called the best laid plans. And I wish we had done it. We just, I don't know where he got distracted, but I saw a pitch this week and I can't tell you much about it, but of all the pitches that I've seen in all these years, it's the, probably the most perfect I've ever seen. And I think it's going to be huge. And I'm hoping this will be the first company I've actually, I haven't documented a company long-term since 2000. I've been doing other things and this might be the next one. Yeah. It might be, it might be big. It might be big. I got to tell you, I saw more companies fail. I used to walk into these startups and if they had, if they were spending a shitload of money on design and architecture and perks and stuff, and I'm talking about like in the mid nineties. Nowadays, if they don't do that, there's so few talent. There's no pipe. There's, you know, we graduated 200,000 engineers in the U S and in China it was 2 million. The starting salary for an AI engineer is a million a year now. It's like, there's no, ta- so everybody's got to have everything fabulous for you to work there. So it's so competitive. But back in the days, you know, Jeff Bezos used doors on top of sawhorses. That's the kind of mentality that you really had to have. And you probably should still bootstrap if you can. People raise way too much money and then it doesn't work out and they get nothing. You know, you should bootstrap if you can. But anyway, you could walk in and you could tell in 10 minutes if they were going to make it or not because they were focused on the wrong things. They weren't writing code. They weren't focused on the product. They were focused on puffing and popping and marketing it out there before they had the real product. But do you, are you familiar with Guy Kawasaki's uh, pitch deck? Guy Kawasaki is like he, he was the evangelist at Apple and worked with Steve. And he's got this thing you can download. And I recommend it highly. And uh, I actually used it in 2009 and raised money successfully. But I think the perfect pitch is driven from an obsession and an inspiration. And then it's honed like a piece of really good music with the perfect chorus and the perfect hooks. <laughs> and, you know, it's so hard. It's so hard. And then you got to sell it. And that's another interesting part. Some people are natural at this. Some people are great at doing presentations. I met a guy recently that I, I was shooting who is a very introverted kind of engineer. And his pitch is not, you know, it's, it, his idea is so compelling. And it's going to be amazing, I think. He's very young. And he's raised $40 million, you know, with a very non-sexy, very engineering, almost boring pitch. So I guess we just don't know. Like I said earlier, I don't know. I don't know a fucking thing. And they say that in Hollywood. No one knows a fucking thing. That's a great old Hollywood saying. You never know. But ultimately, if you break down every successful pitch, somebody's obsessed. Somebody's extremely driven. And their idea aligns with the zeitgeist or with the needs of the market that they are going into. It aligns with that I love that whole process, and I love it when people come up with stuff that's counterintuitive, <laughs> and it looks like it's going to fail, and it's completely wrong. I met another guy recently who I think can turn, he has every chance of turning the contemporary thinking of what, how AI should be prosecuted on its head. Like He might be the guy that turns Facebook, Google, Apple, all the way people are going about, you know, the idea, I mean, what is AI, machine learning, you know, it depends, but if you're trying to replicate a human brain right now, I think the way they're trying to go after it predominantly is with software and silicon. 
but you have 86 billion neurons in your brain. No, there's more than that, isn't there? I think there's 86 billion on one cubic centimeter. I don't know. There's a ton of there's a lot. neurons. And as it was explained to me, if you wanted to create the equivalent in software and silicon, a chip, for even a cubic centimeter of your brain, you would need a chip the size of two basketball courts covered with processors. And the amount of electricity to run that would be like a small city. So if you were going to try to replicate the whole human brain, like some people have announced they're doing, can you imagine it would be more electrical power required to run that giant chip than the entire Earth can create? So this person that I'm talking about now has this biological solution, and he's programming neurons, and he's actually getting them to work, combining them with silicon. So the power of our neurons is so much greater than anything. We haven't got quantum computing yet. That's still a myth. We have qubits lasting millions of a second or whatever. It's not there yet. But they have gotten it to work in two dimensions for a split second. So someday, Moore's Law died about six years ago, right? And to do the artificial brain, the re replicate the brain, you need to be at the knee of Moore's Law. You need to have this astonishing doubling and quadrupling of power that we've had since 1964 when Moore announced Moore's Law. So we don't have that now. We have parallel processing. We have, we have interesting, cool stuff happening. And there's improvements in processing speed that I'm not even probably aware of. But, you know, there's supercomputers. But to get the kind of processing power you need to replicate the human brain... I think this guy's onto something. It's, it's really interesting. We'll see. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's ex exciting, exciting to be you, man, because you have you have this <laughs> access. You know, dinner parties at your place sound like they're pretty good. You might have some good conversations. <laughs> you have some good, good conversations over carbonara, Doug. <laughs> I'm grateful that we can speak, but I'd love to, you know, I'm, I'm mindful of the time. I'm mindful it's quite late in New York where you're speaking right now. So let's talk a little about what we spoke with at the, at the start. I'll hold up my phone here. All right. You you said you had, uh, you spent the evening with the person that, one of the people that worked on the team that put this camera on this iPhone right she here. Did. There were cameras on phones before. I had a shitty old Nokia 3G with this one megapixel, you know, sensor on it. <laughs> we were supposed to change the world. What has the extraordinary explosion of access to photos that are easy to take and look damn good straight away and not having to wait for that processing, taking it to the chemist, all that kind of shit you used to do? What, is, what has that done for how we use photography, do you think? How, how are we approaching photography and appreciating photography now that everyone has so much more access to it? 
Well, I think it's unleashed all this human creativity. Like a billion people came online last year with smartphones or something. And just imagine, you know, the creativity that's out there. I think Mariko Borgov, who's an extraordinary cross-disciplinary person with all these different skill sets, and she was just the right person to do this, to drive the uh, camera team for Steven. Yeah, they, they had an off-the-shelf system, and they were phones with cameras before. But Mariko's insight was, hey, we have the talent. We have the desire. We could create this iPhone camera could be rival the best DSLRs. We could kick the shit out of the, you know, we could do something that would be high quality. And it's all about the incredible algorithms and math for focus and uh, the different things they brought to that development of that camera that she spearheaded. And she, she had the vision for what that could be. And, and Steve was like, go do that. You know, and that that unlocked the power of this for professional photographers. And you know, there's a lot of there's two ways of thinking in selling to selling cameras. It used to be, and it oscillates. The the first way is, hey, have the pro use your camera, and then the amateurs will follow the pros. And then there's another way, which is, uh, who cares about the pros? Just figure out what the amateurs need and sell to them directly. And it goes back and forth. You see this all the time in different campaigns. Well. This camera was the equalizer. This camera is a phone. I, I felt you know just unleashed. This is like my journal, my walking visual journal, and I'm really grateful that they put the time and energy to because you know what, as a photographer, when you were using the early versions, ultimately you really couldn't embrace it totally because you could only use it like this. You couldn't make a print. Now I have portfolio images from this here, and I have to interrupt for one second because. <laughs> This is my camera of choice right now. This is the new Leica SL, which came out a few years ago. And it's kind of a hybrid between a mirrorless like the Sony and the DSLRs, like I was doing using another brand for years and now Leica's a sponsor. But that is the ultimate for me in a professional equipment. But they have a saying, you know, the best camera is the one you have with you. And, and I always try to have that camera with me, but this one is in my pocket. So that, I think, unleashed a whole new way of thinking for professionals. And their families and friends saw them using it, and they had it, and kids had it. And when you see kids interacting with it and working with it, and what I think has happened is the iteration process is so much faster. You know, with film, you had to very carefully compose or shoot, and then you process it, and you get it back, and you go in the dark room, and all that stuff. The barrier to entry is so low now. It's frictionless. But be, being able to shoot a lot with this and look at it and see, I'm watching people in my own family and friends learning, because they can. It's so much faster for them to see, oh, that's not good. How did you do that? And then they can play with it. Not everybody gets to the point where they want to learn how to improve their photography. But I think the iPhone is this powerful tool that has allowed people to be creative. And I mean, what, what was the whole digital revolution around anyway? You know, that camera, the reason I was kind of saying jokingly there was this, this, and then the camera is because it's such a great equalizer and liberator of creativity for, the, for anybody. You know, and that was Steve's vision for the Mac, you know, computers for the people, for regular people. And that was Doug Engelbart's vision that we should lev leverage our brains versus replace them with robots. We should leverage, right? Wasn't that his idea? That was a humanist vision for these tools. 
you know, there's been a lot of mistakes along the way. There's been a lot of crazy shit. And we, the one thing that's top of my mind right now is how social media is, you know, in this midlife crisis of, oh, we're, we've destroyed democracy and we're killing your culture and your values and trolls are dominant and all these problems with social media. At the same time, it's beautiful to have a connection to your audience and to, as an artist, you can communicate directly. And it's just amazing the things and, and to reconnect with friends and family, all that stuff is really powerful. That's what they wish it was all the time. All of these unintended consequences from their algorithms that are not thought through, that are laced with biases. Um, but I just think, damn, if you can get a tool that's simple and anyone can use, you, it's just transformational. And I'm so grateful that they did it because I love it. You know, I fucking love it. And I think I'm, I'm thinking of a few friends of mine who are really interesting people. They're smart people. And they always loved photography and they were very supportive of my work. And this camera has opened up a whole new world for them. And they're posting they're on Instagram, you know, and it pisses me off, too. Because they're taking pictures I wish I took. <laughs> like my wife, my wife has this unbelievable eye and, and she'll always go, oh, that's amazing. And I'm like, why didn't you tell me? Because oh, I have a camera over here and she's shooting with her yeah. iPhone and she's getting these great pictures that I didn't even see. So this is the thing. Everybody has their own visual power that they haven't unlocked yet. And the phone can unlock that. So you mentioned that your wife has has an eye. Let me just to wrap this to give some. Let, let's give people listening a bit of homework. How can you how can you develop your eye, Doug? Well, I like to start people off with with it was a camera. It would give you a fifty millimeter lens. I mean, in the old days, we'd give you one type of film, like Tri-X black and white. Shoot with a fifty millimeter lens, simplify it, and do that for a year. Just that. Then you could go to a wide-angle lens or a longer lens, and you, you know you have to learn a vocabulary. And there's basic things. One of the first things that I would recommend. So that's what the, we would do in the old days. With the iPhone, they have this incredible two-camera system. So it's really wide, but then they have this. <laughs> I can't. I don't remember the lens length, but it's like a fifty or almost an it's eighty. It's in portrait mode. Yeah, in portrait mode. We just hit 2x in photo mode, and it's a longer glass. It's more like the human eye. It's like a 50 to 80 or something. I actually shouldn't know the focal length of these lenses, but I don't remember. Anyway, I would shoot in 2x for a year. And But before you do that, I'd go and get – there are several places online where you can go. I can't give you the URLs. Rules of composition or just basics of composition. There's this one core – foundation of composition called the golden mean aristotle's golden mean and it's like a rectangle with a spiral and triangles and it anyway if you read about just go on wikipedia and read about that and what you're trying to do is figure out why a picture works and it works because a there's some emotion probably b the light and shadow and the composition moves your eye around the frame in a way that's rewarding to the viewer. And we know in physics that your eye goes, because of the wavelength of light, your eye always goes to the lightest area of the picture. And that can be the depth of your picture because it goes right off the edge. You want to have the light on the subject. What is your subject? So you want to think about, so A, limit yourself to one lens and just practice, practice, practice. That's how you get to Carnegie Hall, right? And then to learn about composition, learn basics of composition, like the triangle. 
is the strongest form of composition. If you can have your eye move in tri around a triangle, this is Sebastian Salgado, one of the greatest photographers who's ever lived, showed me his prints one night in his dark room in Paris. We were drinking till late, and he was showing me pictures, and and he would say, "Look at the triangle," and I'd be like, "Fuck you, man! <laughs> this is so brilliant." And it's true. And you know, I'm always trying for those triangles, and he just saw them naturally. So learn the rules of composition, and then try to play with white. Try to play with light and shadow, and you layer these things. These are like 3D chest layers that all have to come together. Another thing that I would lay into that as a street photographer, as a documentary photographer, is Cartier-Bresson said, it's not enough to have the decisive moment. This is the famous phrase that we always think, oh my God, you've got the decisive moment. It's just not enough. And this ties into what I was telling you about visual memory before. He goes, it's not enough to have the decisive moment. The photographer must anticipate that moment coming and move until it lines up into a pleasing geometric composition, a.k.a. or a la Aristotle's golden mean. It, it, I don't, he's not referencing that, but why is a picture memorable to you? Why is it memorable? And funny enough, I had this conversation with the legendary magna photographer, Dennis Stock, who died a few years back, and he was a, he was a good friend and mentor, and he kicked my ass a few times. Um, but he was over for dinner at this very table and when we were in Woodstock, and I was defending contemporary fine art photography. And he was being an old curmudgeon. It's like, bullshit, it's crap, it's all crap, it's meaningless, you're not going to remember it. I'm like, Dennis, rules are made to be broken. And he's like, bullshit. <laughs> he goes, go back and look at your favorite pictures of the 20th century, the ones that you cannot get out of your mind, that you can't forget. Go back and look, and you will see that every single one of those is memorable because they're following the rules of composition, going back to the golden mean. Okay, well, I did that, and it turned out to be true. It turned out to be true. So. Why are some photographers great? It's because they instinctively see things geometrically in a graphic way, and they're getting moments, and they're getting emotion, and the light is great, and it's freaking hard. It's freaking hard. It's like a miracle. Every good picture is a miracle. Some people are just good at it and easier for them than others, and others have just really work at it. But I think it's kind of a it's, and this is a language of seeing. This is a way of learning to see. And that's why this is so exciting, because you can use this to learn to see. And I think if you go and get an MBA, you're probably taught not to see, oddly enough. Because when I go into campaigns, advertising campaigns, a lot of times people don't really, it's amazing to me because they, are, they just don't see. And I don't know if that's because there's some other process in the collaboration inside their world that they don't want to see. Or they don't want to say, oh, that's great. Wow, did I digress? The whole point about visual memory and why we remember stuff, how is it formed? Where does it store it in our brain? But the 8x10 print is the delivery mechanism, I think, of biology's favorite delivery mechanism for data for humans. But within that, for that square rectangle whatever shape to last in your memory has to have that other stuff the graphical composition the geometrics and i think yes rules are made i still stand by my statement rules are made to be broken but it has to work if it works it works
You yeah. could go over to the edge. It doesn't have to be a triangle. There, there's some mystery to art we can't explain, but you got to learn those rules if you're going to learn to see. Then you can break the rules. I love it. I love it. Doug, you're a, you're a, you're a busy man. You're you're working hard. You're talking to me very late at night in New York. I can't be more grateful. If people listening are like, this is great. I know you've got a lot of projects that people can get involved in. What would be for you the most exciting thing you're working on right now that people can get involved in? Well, to, to be honest, we're in this phase where we're trying to create a TV series and CAA is packaging it on yeah. the next generation, the next generation of innovators who will be the next Steve, our tagline is who will be the next Steve Jobs and where will she come from yes and yes and, yes <laughs> and, and you know in the fearless genius book i studied a fair amount i documented young women and women engineers coming into the valley and i think what and i was talking with Mariko about this it's so obvious when you're inside these companies when the conversation around the table is diverse the products get better, the arguments get hotter, but the worldview gets broader and it gets more functional and practical. So I think that's a, anyway, we're looking and we found three amazing stories and we're hunting for, so you can get involved by sending me great stories of innovators. The, the other thing is we have started a nonprofit for education and I'm not ready to accept donations yet, but we, our dream is to take the case studies that I did in the Fearless Genius story, and we're working with a professor at Manchester named Vikas Shaw, and we're creating, right now, he has a template for an entrepreneurship program that's got the photos and the interviews we're doing, and what we wanna do is take the lessons of history and make them relevant, which they are, to this coming generation through a Fearless Genius Education program, and he's teaching it in the MBA programs that he's done at MIT and Lisbon and at, and at Manchester, and it's been successful, but we wanna transform that into a program that we can bring into underserved communities in the US. Like I mentioned, there was only 200,000 engineers graduated last year. How do we get more into the pipeline? So I'm not ready to like put up a, a thing for donations, but we are looking for strategic partners, and if there is anybody yeah. out there interested in working with us, we've, We've got it pretty much teed up and ready to go. We have a good team. And so I'm working on the education piece. I'm trying to do the TV series. We've been interviewing some of the legends from back in the day that will yeah. eventually be a documentary. And I've got another project we're working on about that there's this amazing guy named Riley John Donnell created called Into Yellow. And he co-founded Surface Magazine back in the day. And now he's an artist here in Kingston, of all places, where there's more artists per capita than anywhere else. And the idea is to support spreading optimism and uh, mental health for artists was at the core of this, you know, because there's that whole thing of crazy genius, <laughs> creativity yeah, and art yeah. and insanity. Oh, yeah. I think right now mental health is becoming a subject that can be talked about more, particularly here in the U.S. I'm not sure about Australia. But artists are, they're a troubled lot and a difficult lot. And so what I'm doing is I'm collaborating with a group of artists, some of them pretty well known, and I'm trying to document their process just like I did with Steve Jobs. What is your creative process? And somehow what Riley did was he got Pantone to create a whole new color yellow for this project. <laughs> so Holy we have to shit. incorporate 
we have to incorporate the color yellow into each each series somehow. So that's yeah. the other thing. I'm, I'm working on a few other things, and I'm doing some ad campaigns that I'm really excited about. And you know, you know the, the, I'm the, trying the, to stay out of jail, man. That's all. You know, Doug. The, 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 the biggest thing that I've I've learned a lot from this conversation, and <laughs> I'm just so freaking happy that we got to speak. But the the, the big thing that right. I'm hearing from you is that. You know, as far as the business model goes, not everyone's going to be a you know documentary photographer or a photojournalist or a TV presenter that I you know my my gig. But the business model of what's the thing that you can do to make the money that you enjoy and you can find an amount of love in, but it gives you the finances to do the things that lights your heart on fire. And watch how the thing that lights your heart on fire serve the thing that makes you money, which then serves the thing that lights your heart on fire, and it goes around in a cycle. Would that be right? You have it all figured out, my friends. That's the goal. But what you just said requires risk. It requires walking through fear. It ain't easy. If you try to do that, you'll probably fail at some point. But that's just a speed bump. If you really believe in your ideas, you got to keep trying. And you'll never hit it out of the park if you don't do that anyway. You'll be living that li quiet life of compromise that isn't taking you to Mars <laughs> or the future or happiness. Doug, welcome to your new home, and thank you so much for taking the time, man. I really appreciate it. You're the best, Asher. I hope we can hang out in person sometime and knock back a few. Mate, well, I'm sober these days, so there'll be great coffee, but don't worry, it's we'll knock back a few. A few coffees. You're on. I love it, man. That was Doug Menway. You can follow him on Instagram at dmenway, D for Delta, M-E-N-U-E-Z or Z, depending on where you are. Uh, his book, Fearless Genius, is out now, and you can, of course, find heaps more info about Doug online. Thank you so much. And don't forget, next time you take a photo on your phone, times two. I've done that since we recorded this podcast. My photos are amazing. Thanks to Doug. Thank you, everybody, that helped me make this show today. Andy Marr, my audio producer. Rachel Barrett on the calendar wrangling and the production of the show. Mike Mills, also known as Toe Hider on the music, who will be joining me in Melbourne Thursday and Friday night. I cannot wait to see you there. Thank you so much to everybody who bought a ticket. I can't wait to meet you. Say hi after the show. Until we speak next time, what are the things you're doing every day? Just have a look at them. We'll talk about it next week. Until we speak next time, sleep well. Dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.